Serverless computing is growing in popularity and is heavily promoted by public cloud providers. The much-touted benefit of serverless computing is to allow developers to focus on their code while the public cloud provider manages the environment and infrastructure that will be running it. But how is serverless different from container-based services? What are the best use cases for serverless? How about the challenges? And can this architecture move forward in the future? We answer these questions and more in this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. All right, joining us all the way from Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. How have you been? Hey, Kevin. I'm very well. You? I'm great. And our guest for today is a developer evangelist at Sematex.com, a SaaS based out of Brooklyn, New York. He is a passionate teacher helping people embrace software development and healthy DevOps practices in various venues since 2017. He's also the author of Node.js Monitoring, the complete guide, and has several published articles, programming tutorials, and courses under his belt, founded websites such as FreeCodeCamp, HackerNoon, Medium, and Dev.to. He's now here with us to share his expertise on serverless computing. Joining us for a round of cocktails, Adnan Rahich. Hey, Adnan. Great to have you on the podcast. Hey, hey. Good to be here. All right, so let's dive right in. In our previous podcast, we have often discussed Kubernetes and container-based approaches to microservices. Uh, can you briefly explain to us how serverless is different from container-based services? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you think about it, uh, with containers, you get, uh, you get a package where your code runs. So it's basically you package your code into an executable, uh, executable and then you run this on an infrastructure, right? Um, and they're quite logically called containers because of this. But um, with serverless, you, you don't really get that. With serverless, you just deploy your code directly to the cloud provider. And then the cloud provider handles everything from there. Um, you don't really care about the dependencies. You don't really care about the runtime or, or anything like that. You just let the cloud provider handle all of that for you. Whilst with containers, you kind of have to, you know, you have to package all of those things within that container. So you have to figure out, okay, so I need to package the runtime, the, the dependencies, I need to manage all of that. I need to make sure that's all running correctly. Um, but you know, having this serverless approach, it kind of makes it easy in one sense, but it, also, um, it can also be very complex in another sense, because if you overdo it, um, it gets really hard to manage all of that complexity. Um, and then uh, when you think about it, it can also reduce complexity because if you have a huge Kubernetes cluster, for example, or a huge monolith, um, and then you have things like cron jobs, or email services, or things that aren't really related to the core functionality of your, of your actual cluster or of your product, you can then cut those pieces out into serverless functions that would basically be isolated. So if you know how to use it correctly, or if you have a, a very good sense of uh, how to get the best out of it, then it makes sense. Um, but it's not, I mean, it's not a silver bullet as anything, like you have to figure out the best use case. And then based on that, what it's kind of intended to be used as, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, good stuff. I mean, we'd like to get to the use cases and some of the challenges and complexities you, you mentioned uh, in a minute. Before we get onto that, uh, I mean, serverless is often um, uh, mentioned in uh, reference to functions as a, as a service, but serverless is broader than that, right? So it's encompassing more than just functions as a service. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, definitely, basically anything that doesn't require a server can be considered as serverless, right? But uh, only functions as a service, that's a, that's a subset you can call it. Basically, if you think about services like Lambda or Azure functions or, or things like that, those are all, uh, FAAS, I mean, the FAS, we call them function as a service where you have this, uh, you have this service where you can deploy your code, hook it up to an event trigger, something triggers that code and, you know, it runs, something happens and you get a return value, which is basically what you want. And that's just one subset of having serverless or using serverless. Um, if you think about it, like if you're running a website, a super simple static website on S3, that's serverless as well. Are you managing a server? No, you have S3, you slap your files in there and you hook it up to a domain and serverless, right? Um, so it's very vague as in what it can be defined as, but it's also, it's very loose in a way where if you're running a website on Netlify and you're hooking up an API to some Lambda functions or you're using services like Vercel or, or you're just running it by yourself on AWS Lambda on S3, all of those things can be considered serverless because I mean, have you ever touched an EC2 instance? Not really, no, right? So, I mean, it can still be considered that way. I know a lot of people that are like hardcore, uh, like purists, they're gonna say, oh, you're, this is so, so weird. So, so, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe no. It's just that in the end, I mean, um, whatever flows your boat, yeah. I mean, whatever, the, the point of serverless is to make it simple, to make it easy for people that don't need to manage infrastructure. I mean, uh, uh, hypothetically, if I'm a, you know, if I'm a startup founder, I don't really want to care about managing containers and, and, and instances and running the infra and then hooking all of these things up and getting like a, like a really large bill for something. I mean, why? I don't really need that. If I have, you know, if I'm making a ton of money and then I need to employ like, tons of people to like run that so I don't have downtime then sure yeah I mean that's that's the next logical step but if I'm not well there's plenty of managed services for containers as well so yeah so manage kubernetes and uh you know as you say manage virtual service through ec2 or uh container-based uh services as well so there's plenty of opportunity for managed infrastructure and containers. But I guess that sort of starts leading us down the path. And I guess one thing we want to clarify, sometimes when we're talking about best use cases or complexities or challenges, we're actually talking about functions as a service. We're talking about that subset. So I think we just need to clarify that. But let's maybe talk about some of the best use cases for serverless then. So um, you said, you know, it depends on the use cases to when you use serverless and when you use microservices and container-based technologies. So let's run through some of that, some of the differentiations. Uh, 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 between serverless and microservices based on containers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, to keep it simple, anything that requires uh, like a persistent database connection or requires many database connections, especially to, to relational databases like uh, Postgres or, or SQL, whatever. Um, yeah, just don't like j just 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 like skip the fast altogether. Um, Unless you have, um, I, 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 if I go like really technical in it, unless you have like a proxy uh, API that hooks into your database, um, then it's fine. But that requires another another layer of complexity that often you don't really want, except if that's a use case that you're okay with. 
Um, because the problem with functions is that if you run one function, that's basically one API. And if you think about it, that one API needs a connection to the database. And if you're having, if you're scaling out and you have thousands of functions, then you have thousands of connections to your database. And that's just, that's just like an accident waiting to happen. That's just running with scissors, right? You don't really like why you don't want to do that. It's unnecessary load on the database. It's unnecessary connections multiple points of failure, multiple points of breaches. So, I mean, you just don't, don't really want to do that, right? Um, unless you're using uh, a database that's a service as well that hooks into that, that fast ecosystem, like AWS has DynamoDB, which works fine. Azure has the DocumentDB, or I don't really know what's, what it's called. So any service that can, that can hook into it, it's fine. Um, but that also increases, I mean, you get vendor lock-in there. So if you want to move away from that, you're going to, you know, have a pain. Um, and basically anything that goes with that. So I reckon if you have database connections, dude, figure something else out. Um, but anything else that has to do with, uh, basically you can think of it as sidecars. So if you have cron jobs that are running, you don't really need to run that in your core infra. Like if you have a core Kubernetes server that handles your main APIs or your main database, database handling, whatever, um, you don't really need to run those cron jobs there. You can just like, fire a Lambda, right? Or if you have email services or any type of type of service, an API that you can extract from your core core product, great, because you have that one less thing to think about, and that's going to be less of a load on your entire system. So uh, regarding those things, amazing. That's absolutely great. Uh, I've like one example is I, got, I built an email service um, to get triggered through a Lambda function and uh, another few services through AWS that when somebody types in uh, like a form, I get emailed that response or that question, and then I can just email back that person through any email client. So, and, and I, that's not running anywhere, right? That's not running on a server. That's not taking up any space or, or any like mental capacity for myself to have to like focus on actually get that running and, and keeping it running. It's just there on, in, a, in a function in, in my account in AWS. So things like that, are, are absolutely amazing because it takes away all the stress of having to manage it. Um, unless it's databases, you like, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to go into that wormhole. Um, yeah. What about managing it at scale though? So I get, I get the Chrome job thing or infrequently run services or uh, functions Then you don't necessarily want a server sitting there idle most of the time. If it's only going to be running that function every five minutes or every hour, a serverless makes a perfect use case for that. But what about when you're doing it at scale? Does the serverless still make sense when you're running hundreds of thousands of transactions per second? Um, yeah, it can. It can um, just because it can it can scale so effortlessly. So if you think about a use case on if you have a a function on on AWS, if you get a thousand concurrent connections in the same millisecond to that one API, it's gonna scale horizontally to a thousand functions right away. So you're not gonna get um, you're not gonna get this like this typical type of latency you would get on a standard API like on a on a server or whatever. Uh, so that's a good use case, but that would also mean that it's gonna cost a ton. Like it's gonna cost a lot of money. So if you if you're like a big corporation and having that type of flexibility is something that you want and you don't really care about the price, like good. Um, but for you know for the majority of people, it that that can often be a problem. Um, but going to the latency, that I think that would also be a really, really interesting topic to cover, um, because once those thousand functions get instantiated and run concurrently, every single one of them is going to have a startup latency, because 
that initial request kind of, you know, it needs to grease the engine a bit, you know, it needs to um, warm up. Um, that's another issue. This is one of the biggest uh, challenges for most frequently mentioned associated with serverless computing functions as a service. So just, just explain this concept of this, you know, the warm up process and, and firing up a new function that on that first use. Yeah, I mean, uh, we call it like in the, in the serverless community, uh, it's called cold start, which kind of makes sense because um, it is cold. It's not like the instance of the function isn't there once you're calling it the initial time. Let's say you have an event that's an API and that event will trigger your, your code that's in the function. Like that's like the instance of this function doesn't exist anywhere. So you have to call it the initial, the initial time to actually tell AWS, hey, oh, can you just like make sure this package exists somewhere? And then they package it up, put it in you know a virtual server, whatever they do. Like I have no idea what happens, which is kind of the point. Um, and then that runs and that's going to take an initial set of, I don't know, 200 milliseconds to five, six. It doesn't really, it kind of depends on what you're, what you're running. Um, but you're always going to have that initial, initial latency, which is called the cold start. Now, the problem there is like, there's no way to, like, to go around that. Like there's no way to bypass that um, per se. You can do some things that, um, that are maybe not always considered best practices, but there are like hacks that people do use. And, and one would be, you can just periodically trigger the function to keep it warm, quote unquote warm, uh, which is okay-ish. But again, if you have 500 concurrent connections right away and you're keeping one function warm, that, I mean, it's not doing much, right? You're still gonna get 499 cold starts, right? Um, so you also have to figure out uh, like peak times for when you're gonna expect traffic when you're not going to expect traffic, which is hypothetically okay, but like practically pretty much impossible um, to always be on point regarding that. Um, but otherwise, I mean, there's not much you can do. You can you can keep a set of functions warm, but you know, in the end. I'm guessing the cold start problem is compounded by, in some cases, the language of choice as well. Uh, I'm guessing uh, a Node.js server is going to execute a function a lot faster than Java server, which typically has a you need to warm up the JVM itself once the once the the function has has been you know uh, started from its cold start. Then the JVM needs to be typically warmed up before it's starting to serve requests quickly as well. So, uh, is language come into this as well? New, new serverless choice? Um, it does, but uh, it's not that big of a difference. So the way that uh, at least I know for Lambda, the way it works is that. Uh, AWS packages this code into uh, like a Docker image where it's not a Docker image, but it's a container per se. It's a container image. Um, so the runtime gets packaged into this uh, image as well. Um, but it's a major difference whether you have no runtime at all and are running like Golang as a language, which is just an executable. It doesn't need anything. You just run it um, versus something like Node or Python or, um, or, or Java. So definitely having a language that doesn't need such a big start or doesn't have the big warm-up process is better, um, but the end is not that big of a difference. It's not it's not like seconds difference. It's it's maybe in the hundreds of milliseconds difference, which is uh, for most people is acceptable. But again, if you have those like margins that need to be hit, then it's not really acceptable. Okay, so we, we've mentioned a couple of things. You you mentioned there's potentially a cost penalty associated with serverless. Uh, when you're looking at scale and uh, there's the uh, cold start issue which as you say is only an issue if it's uh, 
very infrequently run. If uh, and there's probably possibly ways around that, although that they have disadvantages as well. Any other challenges that people should be aware of associated with serverless before we go into uh, their great use use cases as well and their advantages? Well, for sure. I mean, uh, if you want to talk about generally developer experience and and how easy something is to to just to build and to integrate or or whatever. Um, then yeah, that the barrier the barrier of entry for using serverless as a as a developer, it can be pretty huge, especially if you haven't done something something like that before or haven't done any event driven. Why is that? Um, because it's a whole new concept of of development, right? Um, you have to think outside of the stereotypical, but you have to think of outside the typical box of development because the typical way is like okay, I run this server on my local machine, I do some changes. I hit reload or whatever, and I see the changes, and I can, you know, figure out how to do what, whether I'm running Node or it doesn't really matter. I, I personally, I'm a Node Node.js developer, so I can, um, I can compare that. But if you're running it in serverless, it's like, yeah, you have this typical dev environment that you kind of can run, but there's no way of simulating a, a lambda function that that you, you can't really do that, right? Um, and that's like the main the main issue is that it's it's you have to run multiple multiple environments for testing and for development in AWS in the actual cloud to get a proper like proper sense of what is what's going to happen in production as well. Um, and then that means that if you're not doing test driven development, if you're not running running unit tests for for your code, it's going to be a pain. It's going to be absolutely horrible, um, and thing and things like that. Um, but luckily, AWS figured out a way. Um, they recently uh, released a like a container runtime something something I can't remember. They always have freaking hard names for like it's weird names for stuff. Don't know why. Um, and they they figured oh, sorry, we don't need to promote those services necessarily anyway. It's like okay, people will find out <laughs> themselves. Uh, yeah. So so what it did was is that they added this this feature where you can basically you can build the container image yourself and then you can push that container image the actual lambda container image. Um, and then you can push that and then you can hook that into Lambda. And then if you want to, you can run that image on your local machine, like through Docker, like, like any other container. So that gives you the opportunity to actually test the live version, like the production version of the function before you push it, which is like, for me, when that happens, like, oh, thanks. Thank you, God. And like every, so that was like, that was a, a breakthrough. Um, and I think that's going to be, that's going to be the goal is like, if you, if you, so uh, one example is like we have CNCF for for Kubernetes and all of the tooling that goes with Kubernetes. If we could, if we could like as a community, have a similar thing for for serverless and get this like this one norm of how we do things, and this one path of how we could have both like scalability, ease of use, developer pr productivity. If we could have monitoring and, and log management as well, because uh, dude, monitoring and log management is a pain in containers, let alone in serverless, right? So if we, had, we could have like one standardized flow for all of that, I mean, that's just, that would be so amazing. If we could go that path, that would be so amazing. I forgot the initial questions. <laughs> so and I, I think you, you just answered some of the some of the questions we're going to ask you later in terms of where you see serverless evolving and what would you like to see in the future? So, that, you know, I think you just iterated through the, the number of things you'd like to see in the future for serverless. Um, one of the... Um, uh, issues associated with serverless functions is they typically have a runtime limit, right? So, you know, if it doesn't execute within X number of seconds, then these, uh, the function is terminated prematurely. 
Am I yeah, right? that's for that's right. Um, the thing is, is that okay? So how, how how do you how do you monitor that? Is that one of the challenges as a developer as well? And and how, how do you control this? Like, do you, how do you know whether it's your code or if it's the server or uh, if, when things are failing unexpectedly? Right, right. That's a that's a really good that's a really good uh, topic here. Um, so back back up until I think it was last year, um, the runtime limit for Lambda functions in in AWS was five minutes. Um, and they pushed that up to 15 now, um, which is, I mean, if, you, if you're running something for 15 minutes and it's, you know, it's not executing after 15 minutes, um, I'd, I mean, that's kind of bad. <laughs> Let's just say that's kind of not good. Um, but on the other side, like I myself, as, as, an, as a developer, I don't really want a function to run for 15 minutes. I mean, if I have some like data intensive calculation thing going on, yeah, I mean, fine, but like, I don't want to keep it open for 15 minutes. Why would I? Why would I even um, want to do that? So the ideal, the ideal part, or like the ideal way of doing this, that is um, also the best practice in, in in the community, is that if you have something that's going to run for that long, chain the functions, because if you're like, you think about it from a logical standpoint as an engineer, as a like when you're writing when you're writing a, a product or, or software. Like you don't want one function to do like a ton of things. You want functions to be modular, right? If you're, especially if you're writing uh, code like languages like that are functional, like I don't know, freaking Erlang or, or something. Something I, I used to, I like, I, I like, I like writing JavaScript uh, pure, like as functional as it gets because it, it reduces the complexity and the like the mental strain. So from that, like from that background, I have, I don't want my lambda functions to do like ten different things. I want one lambda function to do one thing, return the value, and you know move on, right? Um, so you should definitely, you should follow that uh, when you're doing the Lambda functions as well, because you want to change the functions and you can do that really easily with services you, that you get through AWS. You can pipe them through queues, through queues or through uh, the Firehose, Kinesis or whatever. It's all weird names, but you know, they, they make ends meet where you have one value from one function. You push that to a queue. The next function is listening to that queue event, picks up that value and then does the next thing so ideally every function should be a few seconds right and then you get the value at the end it can be yes one function can be a bit longer like five minutes or whatever but i mean if you if you set up your architecture correctly that way and it's fine you're not going to have that many issues but yeah i do understand i do understand the, the initial problem with the execution runtime but in the end if you really need to run something more than 15 minutes probably using a server is going to be cheaper and more efficient so that's also a thing. How do you how do you manage the complexity when you have thousands of functions in in microservices? We have service discovery. You know, microservice will say to the gateway or Kubernetes, "Hey, I'm here. Here are my endpoints. This is this is the service that is available." And so you're aware of it. Something is aware of it and what it can do and can route requests to it. You know, if if it gets a request for that for that particular microservice, if you have thousands of serverless functions which are sitting there idle and can be executed if an event triggers them how, how do you manage that complexity and does it become sort of a an unmanaged web it's, uh, of functions with with no sort of uh i mean you manage it very poorly <laughs> it's, not, it's not really um it isn't i mean jokes aside there's no no really no no good way of doing it um that's that's where we have the the problem uh, with Kubernetes, it's it's mature enough that you get the service discovery and you can you can see what's happening. You have tooling that that are open source 
for both monitoring and log management, which is awesome. Um, and you, you see what's happening. But the problem with, uh, with service now, if you have thousands of functions, uh, yeah, you can see them like in your AWS console, like you can, you can see, but like, there's no real way of, of getting this overview, right? There's no, you can check the logs as well. That's fine. But that doesn't give you this like service overview. And for, you know, if you want to get the service overview, you need to use like a third party tool, SaaS product, whatever for monitoring. Um, I mean, yeah, there are a few out there um, that you could use that are, I mean, really well funded. They, they've been around for a few years, so they have really good leadership, like the C-level exec executives are really competent people. I know a few of them as well, and I can like vouch that are super, super, uh, super talented people. Um, but then again, they're all like separate tools for separate SaaS. Whatever. So we don't have that one unified way that, that we can all agree on, like, yeah, let's use this and make this the best possible way of, of getting this overview, of getting the logs in, getting the metrics in. Um, yeah. What about a, a, a serverless industry alliance? Is there such a thing where there's governing bodies trying to drive standards and adoption? Yeah, as far as I know, the, there is no such thing. I might be a bit uh, outdated, but that would be something definitely we should, we should try pushing towards. Um, we do have some uh, like serverless-esque uh, tooling inside of CNCF that, that run on Kubernetes. Uh, OpenFast is one of them. We have Kubeless or something like, I think it's called Kubeless, which basically that's a set of tools that you can basically set up functions inside of your Kubernetes cluster. Um, but they're not, they're, I mean, very, very rarely used if you compare it to Docker uh, or just containers in general inside of Kubernetes, which does make sense because if you're already running the complex con uh, container environment, then why would you also run the complex FAS environment inside of that Kubernetes environment? So it, get, it gets complicated really quickly. Um, but yeah, having what you said, what you mentioned that, uh, just like, let's say like a collective or an open collective or something that will get people to, you know, push the same things, the same uh, needs. I think that would be all, all, like really fucking, really, really freaking awesome. That'd be so cool. Like I'm already hyped if we actually get that going. <laughs> Sounds like an opportunity for you. Yeah. Like, wait, ooh, I should maybe start another startup. <laughs> but the startup is just like hyping other startups to do this one thing. <laughs> Shit. Look, um, with with uh, serverless, you're obviously very much reliant on a public cloud provider. No one no one sets up their own serverless infrastructure, right? So you, we're talking about you know typically uh, the big three public cloud providers providing some sort of infrastructure to support serverless. So is that a little bit you know uh, in some respects I'm kind of going to answer my own question because we're very much reliant on cloud public cloud providers for a whole bunch of things now, including Kubernetes and microservices as well, but. When you have a serverless infrastructure where you simply cannot see even an underlying VM or, or containers being spun up and, and spun down and, and that, that, that uh, infrastructure is completely hidden from you, is that, how do you manage downtime? How, how do you manage maintenance periods? How do, you, do you just hope that the, the vendor gets this right and can able to transition your code? Is, is, is this even a problem? associated with maintaining serverless infrastructures? Uh, I mean, step one is like really praying a lot. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, not really kidding. Uh, no, but seriously, though, when you think about it, I mean, um, I, I've, I've, I've worked with startups uh, before in my career. And right now, like I work at a monitoring SaaS right now. And we run stuff on AWS. 
Um, do you want to do you want to take a wild guess how many times we've had downtime because of AWS and how many times we've had downtime due to human error? Like human error, a hundred percent of the time. Never has something yeah. weird happened to AWS that we had downtime because of them. And if like if we as a as a major company that has you know a number of employees that runs so many services and spends so much money on AWS has no problem. I, somebody that spends like not no money at all, or somebody that's a Coca-Cola type of huge corporation, I don't think you're going to have any problems with, uh, with running, uh, running anything on, on AWS. Um, but yeah, it, it, once again, yeah, of course you can mitigate the issue with, you know, have setting up functions in different regions and all exactly, that as well. Exactly. And, the, exactly. and one thing that's super, super nice with uh, a serverless and that setting up the, the serverless functions is that we have, I think AWS even calls it like edge, provider as something like that, where basically if you deploy that one function, it gets copied into all of these regions, all of these different availability zones, meaning that like, mm -hmm. not only will this be good for the end user, because uh, if they hit the API, it's going to trigger the function closest to them. So if they're in Singapore, they're going to get the instance in Singapore. If they're in uh, the, you know, the East Coast in the US, they're going to get the one that's running in, in, the, East, in the East Coast uh, in Virginia. So I mean, those are all things, but also if one fails, I, that, like all 12, of, 12 or like 13 of them, them are not going to fail at the same time. So they're yeah, always got much bigger. Problem. Yeah, <laughs> because if, if all of those things happen, it's probably like a world ending event. Um, yeah. so, so there's probably like aliens landing or something. So, all right. So look, look, what's what if you could have a wish list? So, you know, you've been you've written books on serverless and and you've been working with it for some time now. Uh, if you could have a wish list of the things you would like to see and uh, you know, whether it be toolkits or infrastructure or, or governing bodies and, and standards, give us a quick rundown. What would that wish list look like? Yeah, I mean, better tooling is for for sure. I think better tooling. I mean, I, I work at a at a serverless, uh, sorry, uh, monitoring SaaS, and like we're currently working on making better tooling, but it's so hard when you don't have this one unified like body governing what, what, what like what the community wants, what what we need, what we. Like what we're striving for so better definitely having better uh, monitoring tooling is is number one um also if we could get the cloud providers to get uh to be unified about the apis they use and the, the way they run the serverless functions that would be absolutely amazing then we can have a unified way of gathering stuff like logs because right now like you have to like bake in your own like log collection enrichment shipping type of tool that's going to run inside of this serverless environment extract this data, extract the logs, extract the metrics from the run, from all of the execution, whatever is happening, and then kind of package that and send it somewhere. So it's, it's you know, and I, I know this because, I mean, I, I've, like, I've built this before, like this freaking log collection tool. tool. We have that in, in, our, in our product. Um, and it's, it's a real pain to, to, to build, right? It's not, it's not an easy, like, it's not a straightforward thing to do. Um, and if we could get like all of, the, all of us to work on the same, problem and, and like work on the same solution to that problem, then it's going to be much easier because if we all put our brains in the same place, I think it's going to be great. Um, but right now we have like tons of people trying to solve the same problem in like 15 different ways. Right. And that's, I think it's just like, we're, we're all, I mean, hopefully very intelligent people, many more intelligent than me. I'm not that smart. Um, but then if we like actually put all of our brains in the same place then it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a better impact. It's going to be more of an impact. Um, because if you think about it, like in the, in Kubernetes, like we have Prometheus, we have like fluent bit, all of those tools are like part of the CNCF. 
Um, and you know that those those folks, they support that, they push that, and everything that goes into Kubernetes as a service or as a, you know, as a tool, that's, that just works. And if we could get that as well, um, if we could get like a, a foundation or whatever for serverless, I think that's going to be the thing, you know, the, the just the, the bomb, as kids call it nowadays. <laughs> awesome, Adnan. You've mentioned the, uh, this, the SaaS company. Uh, you've uh, you worked for a few times without mentioning the name. C- can you tell us uh, the company you're working for? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's Um And, you know, I've been there for, I think, a few years now. Um, it was my, I don't, I'm not going to call it like first proper job because I only did startups and, and like uh, consulting freelancing. And then I just got into got into like this real job. And I have to say like having a normal job is super nice. It's like not that stressful. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's not that stressful. I mean, you have like normal hours. I mean, I even I even started going to the gym and like working out. I have a social life now as well, which is like, what? So yeah, I think- Who knew? Yeah, it's like, it's like a new person. Like I've, uh, I don't have back pain in the morning when I wake up, you know, because I actually like exercise except for walking. Uh, so, so yeah, so all of those things are, you know, freaking awesome. Um, but yeah, but if you want to, if you want to like the sh- shout out for, for where I work, or if you like, if you want to work with me, we have a few job openings as well. Um, I promise I will send funny memes in Slack all the time. If you do not want that, I'm very sorry. You're going to get it anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's uh, semotex.com. I can slap a link in the, like this, this description or anything so and people can check it out as well. Good stuff. And, and your social channels, where can people follow you please? Yeah, you can go at, uh, going on uh, either Twitter or, uh, I, Twitter is my, my go-to it's my DMS are open. So if you have any questions there, uh, it's just at Adnan, Adnan Gahic, just my first and last name. Um, and you're going to find me there. Uh, you can check me out on LinkedIn or all of those things. Also, Instagram. I have a I have a fire Instagram profile. I do like influencing, and I don't really do influencing. I have like seven followers, all right. and all of them are like my family and friends. Uh, <laughs> I just like I just like post like workouts and, and stuff on Instagram. Like, and, and everybody just unfollows me because I'm so boring with the workouts. Um, so because I like, go to the gym for like half a year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but do check me out. Like. Uh, I do, I do uh, these things, uh, community stuff and events and conferences. I used to do a ton of those before before COVID, and and I'm still up for doing uh, online stuff like uh, videos and and podcasts. Like anybody that wants to collab or just have a conversation, feel free, uh, feel free to reach out. Good stuff. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Talk about uh, serverless computing um, and uh, the uh, listeners can follow you as you say on Twitter, or LinkedIn, or maybe even yeah. Instagram if they're brave. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a wrap for this round of cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this podcast episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.turtlecloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media. Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for listening to us today. On behalf of the entire team here at Toro Cloud, this has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!